So it's quite a wonderful thing to uh, encounter a path of practice that we connect with. You know, it's... uh, crude analogy might be finding a hobby that you really love, something that you can spend time doing that brings you joy, that's uh, healthy and wholesome. And uh, a contemplative practice, a a path is like that. It's something that is close to our heart, that brings us joy, that's with us whenever we want. Just like if you play the guitar, you can pick it up whenever you like and Uh, enjoy that, enjoy that process. I I don't know about you, but my experience uh, and the experience of many people I know in coming to this uh, path and coming to contemplative practice is that the, the thing that usually draws us is meditation. Whether it's mindfulness or um other kinds of meditation practice, the, the sort of interesting, different activity than what's normally offered in our culture uh, and the promise of some well-being or some happiness or some ease or some insight through that uh, inner technology, if you will, is often what brings us or draws us to this path. And then as we explore and as we practice, we might discover that it's actually much more than just sitting quietly with our eyes closed. So it is genuinely uh, an entire path of practice. It's It's a whole way of life. And when you look at the presentation of the Buddha's teachings, there's never just one thing. It's never just one thing. It's always a constellation of different factors or different qualities or different attributes or different activities all working together in concert. It's like a matrix of things that together bring about a certain transformation in our life. And meditation is one component. It's one piece. So, for example, the Eightfold Path, right? There are eight parts, not just one. Or the Seven Factors of Awakening. For any of you who have studied Buddhism, you know all of the lists, right? The Seven Factors of Awakening, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calm, concentration, equanimity. The Five Spiritual Faculties, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, it goes on, right? But you see there's always these different parts working together. What I'd like to talk about tonight is one component of this path of practice that's really the foundation. And if you want to build something, you need a good foundation. You need a solid foundation. It's just like even to come back to sitting practice, if you're not steady in your seat, literally, it's going to be very difficult to pay attention And in the same way, there's a foundation for the whole path. And if that's not solid, everything else becomes uh, more difficult, 
less balanced, less steady. And the foundation for the path of practice and for meditation is about how we live. It's about what we do every day, not just the 45 minutes or half an hour or hour that you meditate. It's everything else around that in your day. That's the foundation. And in the Buddhist tradition, there are two basic guidelines for how we live. And the first is to practice giving, to just explore what it's like to be generous, see what it's like to share. And the other is to live ethically, to not cause harm. And when you look at those two, that brings us into the space of relationship, giving and sharing and not causing harm. That's about how we are with each other, right? It brings us into the space of the heart. That's the foundation of this practice, is how I am with you, how we are with one another in our life. I think often in our culture there there can be a kind of a resistance to talking about ethics um, for a variety of reasons. And so what I'd like to explore with you tonight is what's meant by this in the Buddhist tradition uh, and how this is really a support for our practice. So the first thing to understand when we talk about ethics on the Buddhist path is the purpose. The purpose of ethical living is to be happy. It's very simple. It's to be happy. It's not to feel guilty. It's not to beat ourselves up or judge ourselves or compare ourselves or not feel good enough. It's to be happy to have a sense of well-being in our life. That's the purpose. When, uh, when you take the five precepts formally, sort of in a ritual ceremony in Pali, at the end, uh, there's a short blessing that the monastics will give. And I want to I wanna recite three of the lines from that blessing. And to give you the translation, because it it really situates why we're invited to explore the realm of ethics in our lives. So the three lines, the first is, Silena Sugating Yangti. Sila is the word for ethics, and I'll, I'll talk more about that word and the translation in a few minutes. Silena Sugating Yanti means... Sila is a vehicle for happiness. It's a vehicle. It's something you get in that takes you to a certain place. Where does it take you? Sugating, happiness. One of the epithets of the Buddha was Sugato, the happy one, the fortunate one. So ethical living is a vehicle for happiness. Silena bhoga sampada. Ethical living is a storehouse of goodness. 
a path to blessing or a path of blessing. So there's this sense of, of a richness, bhoga sampada, a path of, that's full of blessing and goodness. So something welling up inside. And then the third line, silena nibutinyanti. So there's that word yanti again, vehicle. Silena nibuting is related to the word nibbana. It's just a different grammatical form of the word for nirvana or nibbana. So ethical conduct is a vehicle to freedom, is a vehicle to awakening. That's that's big. (laughs) That's not a small statement, right? It takes you to awakening. So this is the purpose of ethics, happiness, blessing, goodness, and freedom, liberation. And if we just look, if we examine in our lives, what's the result of causing harm to another person? Right? We've all done it. We have all caused harm. Is there anyone in this room who hasn't hurt somebody in their life? Okay, good. Phew. <laughs> right? It's just part of being human. It's because we're not... We're not fully enlightened, right? We hurt one another intentionally, unintentionally. Well, how does that feel? What's the result when we say something that we can't take back? That's hard, you know? That doesn't feel good. What's it like to be free from that? What's it like when you've done something or said something and you're able to make amends? Or you're able to forgive yourself? And that, that entanglement, that remorse, that regret subsides. How does that feel? Ah, oh, so nice, right? So Thich Nhat Hanh, many of you know who he is, Vietnamese Zen master and poet, um, one of the things he likes to talk about is he, he talks about one aspect of this path is learning to appreciate your non-toothache. Does anyone here have a toothache right now? One person in the back. Compassion to you, my friend. May it subside quickly. So for everyone else who doesn't have a toothache... Can you appreciate your non-toothache? And for our friend who has a toothache, how are your hands or your legs feeling? Are they, are they in good shape? So you appreciate the lack of a charley horse. Okay. So just notice the absence. Toothaches, they, they can hurt, you know? So to appreciate the absence of remorse, the absence of regret, This is one of the purposes of living ethically, is that our mind doesn't become entangled in the the heaviness of feeling regret, that, that burning, the helplessness of not being able to take something back. So when we're living in this way, when we live in a way where we're not 
causing harm to ourself or others, then the mind can be free from remorse and regret. And that creates a stable basis for meditation. The mind can settle more easily. There's a feeling of being at ease inside. And the Buddha talked about this as a natural law. He said, you know, for one who's living ethically, you don't have to exert some great act of will to say, may I be free from remorse. It's natural effect. When you're living ethically, you don't feel remorse. And for one who experiences non-remorse, it doesn't take an act of will to say, may I be glad. It's a natural law. Gladness will arise. And from there, there's a whole progression of feeling happy and joyful, at ease and tranquil and concentrated, all of the factors of meditation unfolding. But one of the keys here is that we actually have to notice and experience. We actually have to appreciate our non-toothache. To go back to that metaphor, we actually have to appreciate the absence of remorse to notice that in ourselves. So I'll come back to that a little bit later and say more about it. Because it's, uh, it's kind of the key to how living ethically is a vehicle for happiness. So I want to talk a little bit about this word sila, what it actually means. So first I'm just going to offer a few different words to translate this term. And as you hear each word, just notice if there are any associations or connotations that come up. No right or wrong, just feel. Just notice how it, how it feels to hear the different translations. Virtue. Morality. Ethics. Integrity, character, careful conduct, it's quite a range, yeah? How many people felt at least some negative associations with some of those words? Mm -hmm. How many people felt a positive association with some of those words? Mm -hmm. Right? All of those are, are covered in this terrain by the word sila. Literally, it means something like custom, customs. How you go about things. Sila is how we go about things. It's our way of being, our, our conduct in the world, how we are how we are with ourselves, how we are with one another, how we are with the life around us. That's what sila means. And it has this sense of dignity. It has this sense of being upright. I really like the word integrity or, or careful conduct. For me, that carries the, the, the essence of sila, this sense of being grounded and upright and bright and clear. When I hear the word integrity, that's something that my heart wants. 
Like, I want to feel aligned with that. Sometimes morality or even ethics. There's so, many, there's so much history behind those words, particularly in the West, especially depending on your uh, religious upbringing you know, or your family of origin. There can be a lot that gets added on to those words. The, uh, the image that's used in the Buddhist tradition for sila, the image that's used to represent it, is a flower. So we have these beautiful, beautiful orchids on the altar here. They're on the altar because they represent sila. So just, you know, just contemplate a flower. It's alive. Right? It's beautiful. Pleasing to look at. It's rooted in the earth. Yeah. And many flowers give off a beautiful fragrance. They spread out around them. Have you ever been around somebody who's just, just a really good person? What's it like to be around someone like that? Feels good, right? You know you're safe. You can trust them. They just kind of feel uplifted a little bit. That's sila. So in the in the texts in the Dhammapada, which is one of the texts of poetry, it's said that uh, sila is like um, the scent of jasmine on a summer night. Notice how different that is from morality. Okay? So the, this is about being happy. This is about making our life, our way of being, into something that spreads out like the scent of jasmine. So it's like people like, like to be around one another when that's how, we're, when that's how we are. <clears throat> So the essence of sila, when you boil it down, the essence of this integrity is not causing harm. It's, it's, the word in uh, Pali and Sanskrit is ahimsa, which is sometimes translated as nonviolence, non-abuse. That's the essence, non-abuse. Not hurting living creatures. That's the foundation. That's the foundation of this path. That's the foundation of being human. Yeah? Humans aren't born hating, right? Hatred is taught. Hatred is learned. All things being equal, if you give a human being two options, one of them causes harm and the other doesn't, all things being equal, we will naturally choose the option that doesn't cause harm because we feel we're empathic beings. One of, the, uh, one of the definitions that the Buddha gives for a human being in the early texts is one who follows the five precepts. That's the definition of a human being, someone who doesn't cause harm, someone who's not abusive. <clears throat> 
So from this one principle of not causing harm, of non-abuse, comes a sense of what's called care and concern, or conscience and concern. The Pali is hiri otapa. It means there's a sense of concern for the effect of my actions on, on others, and a sense of care or conscience for the, for the effect on myself. That there's a recognition that what I do doesn't just affect you, it affects me. Why? Because I got to sit in it. Whatever I do, that stays with me. Right? If I speak harshly to you, that's going to echo in my mind. It's going to stay here in my heart. If I take something that doesn't belong to me, I'm gonna, that's going to come back to me. Not in some mystical way, just even when we sit down and reflect on things, we feel that, oh, that wasn't mine. So this, these principles of non-harming, of care and concern, then get applied to all of our activities in life, to the way we speak, to the things that we do, to our livelihood. So it becomes the sort of overriding ethos of how we are in the world. Now, these are meant to be uh, manageable. The precepts aren't meant to be something that uh, is this incredibly high bar that we can't reach. So the five precepts, in case you're newer and aren't familiar with them, just, just the baseline is don't kill other living creatures, don't take things that don't belong to you, don't cause harm with your sexual energy, non-abuse with sexual energy, don't cause harm with your words. That's a really tough one. We're all practicing that. And don't take intoxicants that cloud and confuse the mind and make it more likely that we'll do those other things. That's the, that's the basic five. Don't make it too complicated. They can get very refined, but it's just a baseline. So the, one of the ways that I understand the precepts is like the Buddha's saying, look, if you're interested in being happy, if you're interested in not feeling as stressed out, not feeling as worried, not feeling entangled, and if your goal in life is to realize your full potential, then these are, the, these are the boundaries of the game. Don't kill, don't steal, don't, don't be abusive sexually or verbally, and don't take intoxicants that get in the way. Those are the boundaries. And then you can play the game. Now, what's really important here is understanding that the way to work with the precepts so we've all played games before. What happens when you kick the ball out of bounds? You start over, right? You bring it back in. Sometimes it goes to the other team. Sometimes you get a free throw or something, right? It's not like game over. You don't go sit in the corner and cry because you kick the ball out of bounds. You keep playing, right? So the, the Pali words are instructive here again. When, when one commits to the precepts, the words are sika padang. Sika, that word sika, is the verb to, for to learn. To learn. You've heard of the Sikh religion? That's the same word, sik, sika, 
one who learns. So padang is the word for path. It comes from the same root as podiatry or pedestrian, foot, step, path. Sika padang, a step of training, a path of learning. So each precept is a training step. It's a training, it's not a commandment. It's saying, I, I'm taking this training upon myself, it's voluntary, as a form of learning. And what does it mean to learn? To learn means to make mistakes. That's how we learn. Right? You don't start off perfect. So the precepts are meant to be a learning. It's meant to be something that we study, that we stay with over time and learn from one, one mistake at a time. And this is really important. So that they don't become uh, a way of uh, not feeling good enough or judging ourselves, but rather uh, an aspiration, a sense of aligning our heart with that vision of integrity, of brightness, of blessing, of, of making our life into something of beauty, like a flower. And what does it take? You know, what does it take to practice with these precepts? What does it take to not kill a mosquito? Takes a little bit of restraint. Takes a little bit of patience. Right? You have to actually pay attention to the impulse so as we start to study the boundaries of this game, what we begin to notice are, are the forces that tend to push us out of the boundaries. Self-centeredness, greed, resentment, hatred, jealousy, confusion, frustration, fear, anxiety. That's what you let go of to practice the precepts. That's what we have to put down to not engage in those activities. Well, how is that to let go of anxiety and self-centeredness and greed and fear and confusion and frustration? That's pretty nice to put those things down. So that's why sila is a vehicle for happiness, a path of blessing, because the more we practice with it, the more we shed these forces, these impulses in our mind that when unchecked, when unnoticed, push us to say something that's harmful, to do something that's hurtful. And this practice of integrity, it's really about transforming our heart and mind. It starts with the external, but as, 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 I'm, as we're exploring here, in order to begin to shape our actions and our words, it's an internal transformation that actually happens. There's a, a very beautiful Buddhist saint, uh, monk by the name of Mahagosananda from Cambodia. Many of you probably know of him. Um, he spent his uh, last years living at a pagoda in Massachusetts, uh, not far from the Insight Meditation Society. 
And uh, one of the things he was famous for was uh, during the reign of Pol Pot in Cambodia, uh, leading these peace marches where he would walk through the villages. And uh, it's said that he would knock on the doors of some of the families who were sending their sons off to fight. And he would say, tell your sons to put down their rifles and kill the hatred that's in their heart. He went to the uh, demonstration in Washington, D.C. in, it might have been the 80s, I'm not sure. And uh, a demonstration against landmines. And he was very famous for having said, uh, the landmines and the anti-personnel mines that are in the ground started in our hearts. If you want to remove the landmines and the anti-personnel mines that are in the ground, we must first remove the landmines that are in our hearts. This is the practice of sila. It's a purification of our hearts and our minds of uprooting these forces that spill out into our words and our actions and cause harm. And remembering always that it's, it's a process, it's a learning. It's not a done deal, it's not a one-off, I sign up and now I'm done. It's something that we keep coming back to, we keep realigning ourselves. This is my intention, this is the direction I'm going in. And when we lose the plot, that's how we learn. So the feeling of remorse, the feeling of regret, that burning, that twisting in the heart, that's our teacher. It feels so bad to help us to learn the results of our actions, to help us to actually notice, okay, when I do that, when I follow that intention, this is the result. This doesn't feel good. I don't want to do this again. We actually have to show up. We actually have to bring our awareness to that very feeling that's so uncomfortable in order to, to allow the mind and the heart to learn, to be trained, so that the next time that impulse arises, something inside of us remembers. It says, ooh, I know where that one's going. I think I'm just going to pull back on that. There's a, a very famous story in the, in the texts, uh, many of you are probably familiar with it, of um, uh, a bandit and a murderer in the time of the Buddha by the name of Angulimala, who had been uh, told by his teacher that if he killed a, a thousand people and uh, cut off their fingers, and strung these, the fingers on a, on a mala, that's what the word angulimala means, a thousand fingers, that he would, be, uh, uh, he would be freed, he would be enlightened. And it's said that uh, he had killed 999 people. He was very close to accomplishing his goal. And uh, at that point, he had an encounter with the Buddha that uh, transformed something in his mind. 
and uh, stirred a, a very deep calling for awakening and corrected this uh, view in his mind. And so he renounced his, uh, his vow of, uh, of killing and renounced his ways of violence and uh, took on the training of a monk, committed to the precepts and wore the robes of a monk. And it's said that he had a very, very difficult time in his meditation practice. He was tormented by visions of the violence that he had done. And one day he was on alms round, going to collect his, uh, his food, begging for food in the village. And he came upon uh, a woman in, uh, in labor. And it was a very difficult childbirth. There was a lot of danger. The woman's life was in danger and the, the baby's life was in danger. And he was very deeply affected by this. And he went back to the Buddha and he said, you know, I, I, I saw this woman and she was having childbirth. And, you know, as, I, as I've heard the story told, the, the sense is he was actually touched. He was actually moved in some way with compassion. But he had spent so many years in a place of hatred and violence and disconnection that he didn't know how to make sense of it, this empathy for another being. It was, it was almost too much for his heart to hold, the care that he felt so naturally for this woman and, and, and her baby. And the Buddha said to him, he said, go, go back to the woman and say to her, since I was born, I have never intentionally taken the life of a living being. And by this goodness... May you be safe and protected. May you and your baby be healthy and happy. And Angulimala sorts of, sort of pauses and considers and says to the Buddha, I, uh, I, I can't. That's not true. I can't say that. And the Buddha says to him, says, good. You know, good Angulimala. That's right. You know, you, can't, you shouldn't say something that's true. This is very good that you have this sense of integrity and commitment to truthfulness. He says, then go to her and say, since I have gone forth as a monastic, I have not intentionally taken the life of another living creature or caused harm. By the goodness of this action, may you be safe and protected. May you and your child be healthy and happy. Go and tell her. He says, that I can do. And so he went and he found the, child, the woman in childbirth and he offered this blessing and it's said that she had a, a healthy, successful birth, and she and the, the child were, uh, were healthy and safe. And to this day, that blessing, it's called the Angulimala Parita, is chanted uh, during childbirth in many Theravada Buddhist countries in Thailand and Burma. And the story goes that that was a turning point in his meditation practice he was actually able in that moment to connect with his own goodness, to connect with his own sense of integrity. And his mind was able to start to settle. His mind was able to start to receive its own inherent value. 
through the goodness of his intentions, through the goodness of his actions. This is so important for each of us. To be able to turn towards that goodness, to really see it, to know it and feel it directly. For one who experiences non-remorse, there's no need for an act of will, may gladness arise. It is a natural law. For one who has non-remorse, gladness will arise. So this is part of our training. This is part of the path of meditation is to actually notice that non-toothache. Every day, to reflect on your own sense of integrity. To just review and see the goodness in your life. And we're not perfect, and that's okay. That's why we're learning. That's why we're practicing. But it's enough. It's just enough to notice the goodness of our intentions. You have something you can stand on. You have a foundation that the mind can, can come home and be at peace with itself. It's like you can look yourself in the mirror, literally and figuratively, in your own heart. This is the foundation of our practice. This is the beauty of integrity. So I, I encourage you, I invite you, use this every day, just reflect and connect with your own goodness. You have to build it up. It's not just there instantly. We actually have to pay attention to the goodness of our intentions and keep reaffirming them, keep strengthening them. And then when we come to sit, it's easier for the mind to settle, to find its footing, and to to feel a sense of upliftment and gladness. So I'll stop here and offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. So we have some time for uh, some questions and exploration of the practice and the teachings. And uh, just to say, it's quite open. So you might have a question about something that I've shared in the talk. You might have a question about the meditation practice, or you might have a question about something else related to the teachings in your life. And so it's really, really quite open. And so if you have a question, just raise your hand, and we'll send one of the microphones over so that uh, everyone can hear you. There's a question up here in the front. If there's another question, then raise your hand and we can get the mic to you so that you're you're ready. Thank you for the talk and the meditation. It was lovely. Uh, I am a beginner and I always make an effort to say everything in the positive and to think everything in the positive. Hmm. And with the precepts, Hmm. I was having my own personal... Mm -hmm problems with it because it wasn't resonating with me mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. I would want it to because mm-hmm. I always try and tell people to flip it when they say something in the negative or mm-hmm. even to say the word toothache I would never do that I would say 
your teeth feel great. <laughs> and I, I would actually like to um, overcome this addiction I have to saying everything in the positive. Great. Good. Uh, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> so yeah. I thought maybe you could talk Thank about you. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really good sign that you're seeing the rigidity and inflexibility in the mind, right? Of always needing to do it that way and how that's ultimately stressful. Yeah? So there's, there's, there's insight there. You're actually seeing clearly, you know, whatever the original intention was, it's now actually gotten out of balance. So what I would suggest is um, maybe first to take some time to actually identify and reconnect with the beautiful intention behind wanting to, to flip it, to say things in the positive, right? You know, whether it's to um, inspire hope or um, uh, to uh, feel more connected to yourself or others, whatever that is for you. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that, so I can't comment on it. Um, uh, uh, maybe maybe I, I would understand that. She said the law of attraction as, you know, wanting to be intentional about what, where you're going in your life, you know? But sometimes being intentional about where you're going means not going in a certain direction. If you're walking on a cliff, you better be really darn careful to not go over the cliff, Right, And you're going to pay really close attention to that edge because you don't want to go there. That's really important. So that's why the, the precepts are framed in the negative, not to be a downer, but to make it really doable. It's like, don't kill. Just, just try not to do that. You know, Don't steal. Don't take things that don't belong to you. There is a flip side to each. Practice reverence for life. Practice generosity. Right. So, um, but the negative is important as well. So, so connect with your intention. And then the other thing is notice the stress. Notice the stress of needing things to be a certain way and see if you can find small ways to practice something different. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I was just curious, because when I think about the majority of bad or actions that had yielded suffering in my life or in others' lives, I've noticed that the majority of those actions had either neutral or positive intentions. So I was just curious how you recommend that we, mm-hmm. like, how, how do we deal with that? How, mm-hmm. how, regardless of our intention, our actions can be separate from those and their mm-hmm. effects. Mm-hmm. Can intend to be positive when I say something, what I think mm-hmm. is supporting or uplifting, uplifting but mm-hmm. the effect of that could actually bring about more suffering. So how, how do we, how do we right. deal with that? Thank you. Yeah, that's an important question. Um, so just to first kind of back up and say that the, the precepts and the sense of nonviolence and care and concern in our life is, is pointing specifically to our intention and saying that actions that are motivated by greed, by hatred, by delusion, and all of their children and cousins... Um, will inevitably bring about harm for ourselves and others. And that's ultimately 
the thing that we have the most agency over is where we're coming from. Now, what you're talking about is the complexity of this realm, which is that there are so many conditions present that we can't actually control the outcome of an action. So in the Buddhist understanding, in any action, there's three things. There's our intention. There's the, the wisdom and skill of the execution. And then there's the result. And each of those is subject to many different conditions. So you can, ha- you can have the best of intentions, but if you don't have enough wisdom or skill to act on them, well, you might end up making things worse. You can have the best of intentions and you can be really skillful and wise. And still the result might be painful because we can't control the other conditions that are present. And that's where the understanding of karma comes in, which is that there are things beyond our control that might have, that might have effects. And so in that case, in terms of our relationships, you know, it's really important to make space when, when our actions have an unintended consequence to really f- receive that, to not just say, oh, oh, I didn't mean it that way, but actually to take in the effect and say, I'm so sorry, you know? I didn't realize it would have that effect on you. I, can, I really hear that that was difficult for you. To just be there in that experience without trying to change it or defend yourself. If we can really land there with someone and they can feel heard, that, that, that they see that we get it, ooh, ouch, I'm sorry, you know. Then there's often space to say, you know, can I tell you what I was trying to do? But first, there has to be that meeting of, of what's true for them. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions or comments? Last call. Okay. Why don't uh, why don't we end together with a little chant? So this is uh, sometimes Jack does a chant that's similar to this. It's a little bit different, but it's the same word. <clears throat> So the word in Pali is namo, and namo means something like to honor or to respect, to pay homage. And this sense of respect is also a very uh, essential aspect of the teachings if we don't have a sense of, of respect for something in life, it can be very empty. So traditionally, this homage is paid to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And that which they represent. 
So the qualities of awareness and compassion and kindness, the natural law, the natural order of things, and the uh, community of practitioners who aspire to realize these qualities and the understanding that, that uh, um, is at the, at the heart of uh, this life. Um, so for you, as we chant this, you might just contemplate what is it that you respect in life? What is it that you feel a sense of reverence and respect towards? that you can actually feel a sense of like, yes, this is, this is worthwhile. There's something worthwhile. And just offering that, offering the chant as a sense of, um, as, an, as a, uh, a gift, uh, a gesture of respect to whatever is meaningful for you. And so, um, so the word is namo, and we'll chant it together uh, and we'll start all at once, and then once we get going, uh, if you have a, some kind of musical capacity, then you can feel free to play and riff. And if you don't have a musical capacity, uh, just let her rip. It's totally fine. Chanting is not singing. Just, you know, just, it's just a sigh. It's just an offering. So listen first. I'll chant it three times and just listen so you get the very simple melody and then and then we can come in together. No.
laughter. May our way of being in this world be like the scent of jasmine on a summer night. That there may be more peace and safety on this precious planet. so much for your practice for spending time together tonight uh, if you want to stay in touch I, I do live here in the Bay Area and teach regularly around uh, you can put your email address down on my email list and I send out a, a note once every other month or so with some news okay get home safely Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.